The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to the book of Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 3 this morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 13. Before you object that we haven't looked at verses 1 through 6 yet, I'm aware. And uh, we are going to come back and capture those uh, in our next time together. I wanted to skip ahead this morning and take them a little out of order. So if you would look at verses 7 through 13. As Christ Jesus speaks to the church at Philadelphia, and John writes the words of the Lord, who said this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of the Lord this morning for us. We've been sort of looking through these letters um, to the churches in the first couple of chapters there of the book of Revelation, sort of as a means of reminding ourselves how Christ evaluates churches, and with the goal of being able to look through the lens of these words that, that Christ spoke to other churches many years in history removed from us, and learn from them the things that please the Lord and the things that displease the Lord, to be reminded that Christ cares about how his church conducts itself in the world and to remind ourselves that, that Christ is watching, that he's involved and he's active in the life of his church. And not only is he watching and paying attention, but he's evaluating and he, and he sort of op, gives performance evaluations. Maybe it doesn't come to every church. Well, it certainly doesn't come to every church in the form of a letter like these churches received. But in due time, every church gives an account before the Lord, and the Lord responds and reacts in very similar ways that he does to these churches. And so we're looking at them as a means of looking at ourselves. And we've seen thus far in the churches that we've looked at that Christ speaks in a similar fashion. He gives an introduction that has some description of himself, usually pulled from chapter 1. 
he then usually goes on to bring some commendation, some words of encouragement, some things that the church is doing well. And then he usually follows that up with uh, some sort of correction, in some cases an outright rebuke. And then often from that, following a, a warning to, to correct the things that are being corrected, else bad things are going to happen in the way of judgment. And then he usually wraps it up by offering some promises to those who overcome or to those who hold fast or to those who stay put, who stick with it to the end. And then he closes by saying, if you have ears, hear. And in case you're wondering, we all have ears. You may want to just do a quick check, but I think you do. That means you should pay attention to the words that he has to say because they're serious and they apply to us all. The church at Philadelphia, the one we look at this morning, is the youngest and likely the smallest of the seven churches. And one of the things that we're going to see from this church at Philadelphia that I think is helpful and unique, and, and that I think that in some ways we can sort of latch on to and identify with, is this was a church that was small, it was a church that was largely poor, it was a church that really didn't have, at least from the world's perspective, all the things that you would think you would need to be able to have a significant impact on its culture and the world around it. They weren't many, they weren't wealthy, they weren't among the elite in their society. If you were to just sort of look at this ragtag bunch of people at Philadelphia, you wouldn't have necessarily thought this bunch of people was going to really have any opportunity to do much of anything for the Lord in a city like Philadelphia that was as far from the Lord as it was, as were all of these cities that we've been looking at in Asia Minor at this time in history. And yet what we're going to hear from the Lord is that what we would observe just by the look of the thing is the exact opposite of the way the Lord observes it. Not only are they uh, a church that has wonderful opportunity, but they are a church that the Lord says he's going to give them tremendous opportunity. If, if, if you've ever thought that the that the, the prospect of impacting the world for Christ seems overwhelming. If you've ever looked at yourself in the mirror and thought, you know, I really don't have what it takes. I'm not that smart. There are people who are smarter. I don't know the Bible all that well. I'm not a theologian. I don't have that much influence out there in the world. I mean, really, what, 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 little, what can little me do to make an impact for Christ? Or if you ever looked at, at our church and said, you know, we're just, a, we're just a small group of people. We're not the elites of our society. We're not the movers and shakers. None of us are on the ballot this week for people to elect us to some important office. We're, we're not largely people of tremendous influence in the culture. I mean, really, what chance do we have to make any impact in West Ashley or in Charleston or in the state of South Carolina or in the lostness that surrounds us in the world? If you've ever thought those things or if you've ever wondered about that kind of thing in the back of your mind or looked at yourself or looked at your church and thought thoughts like that, then I think you can identify with probably what the folks at Philadelphia were thinking about themselves. And we should listen to what the Lord has to say to them because it's instructive and I think encouraging to us. Philadelphia, we don't know a whole, much, a whole lot about this particular church or this city. Um, it, was, it was probably the, the smallest and I, as I said, the youngest. It was located on a major postal road and a major tra trade route. So it was a, a great center of commerce. It was nicknamed the gateway to the east because if you were traveling from west to east, you come through the city of Philadelphia on your way to some of these other cities like Smyrna or Ephesus a little further east. So it was a known city from that regard, but we don't know much else about it. We don't know how the church was founded. It was likely founded by Paul on his missionary journey while he was in Ephesus or at least associates of his. We do have a letter written in about A.D. 110 
right after the first century there, or second century, in the early part of the second century, by one of the early church fathers by the name of Ignatius. He writes a letter to this church, and he speaks to them, and he has some things to say uh, of, 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 uh, uh, by way of encouragement in that letter. So we're aware of the, the existence of the church continuing beyond the first century through that. Uh, but there is one unique feature, feature about the church at, at Philadelphia that we do know, that it was a, a place that had a proclivity towards earthquakes, of all things. In, in AD 17, there was a, a massive earthquake that had hit, and Philadelphia was the closest of these cities to the epicenter of that earthquake, and that earthquake leveled the city, and apparently there were many aftershocks that... that uh, continued after that and the people were literally terrified and they fled the city and and moved outside of Philadelphia and for some time were afraid to come back because of the devastation from this earthquake and so it was one of those sort of once-in-a-lifetime events that happens in a place that you just don't forget. Probably in your life you can remember some things like that. I can remember as a, as a, young, as a young guy in high school, Hurricane Hugo blowing through Charleston. It was that once-in-a-lifetime event, you know, that just brought devastation. And it's, it's burned in my memory, right? I remember before that people kind of, you know, were kind of casual about hurricanes. But after Hugo blew through, people understood the seriousness and the devastation, right? And the next, you know, few years at least took those warnings really seriously and so maybe along those lines these folks had had an earthquake that had done a similar thing and was burned sort of in their collective memory and brought fear as they thought about it I've never been through an earthquake really except uh, about a year or two ago we were in California on a, on a vacation and uh, we were uh, well uh, true confession here uh, Aiden and Danielle were in the hotel I was in Disneyland so <laughs> I'll explain to you why that was later on. Uh, uh, for now, I'll just say we'd already been there all morning together, and uh, they were walked out for a moment, had gone to take a break and refresh. The hotel was nearby, and uh, I had gone back to scout out some of the rides. Because after all, I need to make sure they were okay, right? For, for uh, not too scary. We're going to go with that. And while I was walking around in Disneyland, my phone rings, and it was Danielle. And she said, do you feel that? And I said, feel what? And she said, I think there's an earthquake. And in true, in true compassionate husband form, I said, there's no earthquake. What are you talking about? And she said, really, I think there's an earthquake. And I said, why do you think there's an earthquake? Well, they were on like the sixth floor of a hotel room. And she said, well, the room is shaking and, and the light is rattling and it's loud and I think it's an earthquake. And um, again, in, in true compassionate, loving husband form, I immediately believed her. Actually, that's not, that's not true. Um, I, I said, all right, hang on a second, and uh, I'll call you right back. So I called the front desk of the hotel. I said, they're Californians are going to answer. They're familiar with earthquakes. We're South Carolinians, not so much. Uh, you know, is there an earthquake going on? They said, yeah, we just had an earthquake. And I said, well, I'm in Disneyland right down the street. How come I didn't feel the earthquake? Apparently, Walt Disney has some magical means to keep earthquakes out of the park. I don't know what happened there, but I never felt an earthquake. But there literally was. Aiden had fallen asleep on a bed, and it woke him from a dead sleep. And, you know, he was like, what in the world's going on out of the bed? So I remember, don't, don't follow my advice, husbands. Uh, believe your wives when they tell you there's an earthquake, and all will be well. All right, so 
just a, a side about an earthquake. This is my only experience with an earthquake. I never had one before. I still don't. Apparently, I had one, and I just didn't know it. Um, but this town had had a big one, and it had leveled the whole place. And so it was still in their minds. In this city, the religion was very similar to some of the others we've seen. They, they worshipped pagan deities. Their patron god was a, a god by the name of Dionysus, who was the god of wine. So you can imagine what went on in Philadelphia, right? You don't need much explanation there. What you do need to know is that there was, like one of the other towns, there was a rabid Jewish community there that hated this little church because they were largely converts from Judaism to Christianity. And so this, this community of, of Jewish um, uh, zealots were just persecuting this church relentlessly. And, and so that's what we find uh, in, in Philadelphia. What we're going to see here as we move through the text is along with the church at Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia is the only other church that receives no correction from the Lord. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't have a negative word to speak about them. What a great, what a great reality, right? To be able to be a church that the Lord comes in and walks among and evaluates and sees what you're doing and observes your behavior and how you're acting and how you're interacting and how you're carrying out the mission that he set before you. And he doesn't have anything negative to say. That's a pretty impressive thing, right? All he has is words of commendation, and that's the church at Philadelphia, a church, frankly, that's a model. So, that's the one unique for, uh, sort of feature here. He doesn't offer correction or rebuke. Uh, the other unique feature we'll find in verse 7 is that the way Christ describes himself in the greeting is not pulled from chapter 1. Every one of the other greetings, he pulls some imagery of himself that was already mentioned in chapter 1. In this particular church, he pulls an altogether different sort of a descriptor of himself. He says to the angel, the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. No word about that in chapter 1, so very sort of unique description. Some of the parts of the description are pretty common. They're common Old Testament descriptions for God. You should notice that. The Holy One in the Old Testament all throughout God is referred to as the Holy One. Uh, the one who's true, the true one, the one who, who speaks truth, who is truth, who everything he does is right and perfect and true. A description in the Old Testament of God the Father, here applied to Christ Jesus. The Holy One, the one who's utterly perfect, the one who's completely set apart from all the rest of, of, of the world and everything in it is, is attributed to Christ. So both of these things, titles given to the, God the Father in the Old Testament, here Christ claims them for himself, both again, like we've seen before, clear identifications that he and the Father are one, that Christ is in fact deity, God himself in human flesh. But here's the unique factor. He says he's the one who has the key of David. The key of David. Uh, that, that leads us to some questions. Well, what is the key of David and what does this signify? Well, the idea here is that Christ has complete authority and he governs access to his kingdom solely himself. He has complete authority over access to his kingdom. He holds the keys, he says. He can open to whom he wishes, and he can shut it to whom he wishes. There's nobody can undo what he does. Now, this is an Old Testament reference back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. We won't go back there and spend time digging around there, but I'll give you a quick synopsis. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 22, that particular time in history, the position in Israel of uh, of what amounts to like a prime minister, the position and authority that came with that position 
was, was in the hands of one particular man. And in Isaiah's day, the Lord speaks and he says, I'm going to remove that position and that authority from you and I'm going to give it to another man by the name of Eliakim. And God says in chapter 22, verse 22, and I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. The same language you see that Jesus pulls from here in the New Testament. And the imagery there is that of a prime minister who by position and authority has the keys of the kingdom, if you will, to open things up to people and grant access and to close it so that people don't have access. And Christ is saying, in like fashion, I'm like that. I am the one who ultimately possesses the king of David, but not just the keys to Israel, the keys to the eternal kingdom that's established by me. I possess the keys, and I open the door to whom I wish, and I shut the door to whom I wish, and nobody can undo what I've done. He has sovereign authority to determine who enters his kingdom. He opens the door and welcomes some in, and that salvation is assured, and he shuts out the door, and to those to whom it's shut, judgment is certain. Now, Jesus has already been said to have to possess earlier the keys to death and hell, you remember that, the keys to judgment, and now we're told he has the keys to the kingdom, to salvation and blessing. So Christ has sovereign authority over both as we put that picture together. But the bottom line here to this church is this. The church, he's saying to the church at Philadelphia, you as a church, you rest safely under my sovereign control. You, you rest safely under my sovereign control. I hold the keys. The, the persecutors and your enemies don't hold the keys. All they can do is persecute you. They can bring harm and they can bring trouble and difficulty in your life, but they can't shut you out of my kingdom. I possess those keys and you rest solely under my sovereignty and my care. And when I open the door and I welcome you in, there's nobody that can keep you out. You belong to me. I'm the omnipotent one. There's none who can usurp my authority. I think probably secondarily associated with this is one of the things that was happening is as Jews converted to Christ, they were summarily unsynagogued, if you will. I don't know if that's really a word, but it sounds really good. It just means they got kicked out of the synagogue. If you were a, a Jewish person by nationality and by faith and you converted to Christ, you were no longer welcome at the synagogue. You were excommunicated, or in this case, unsynagogued. And the synagogue was not just the center of worship, but it was also the center of all social life and acceptance in the culture around. And so you were kicked out of all of that and ostracized. And so likely this little church was filled with believers who had had that experience. They had been shut out or locked out of the community. And Jesus is saying to them, essentially, listen, don't sweat that. They might, all they can do is kick you out of the synagogue, but I hold the keys to the kingdom. And they can't keep you out of that. I'll open the door for you, and I'll welcome you in. And no one has the power to shut you out. I have full authority to open up my kingdom to you, and I have full authority to shut it to them. Don't sweat what's happening. I've got you. He's reminding them of the truth of Psalm 56, 11, where the psalmist declares, he says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hey, would you read that verse out loud with me this morning? Just, just because. I think it's one that's good to say and burn in our, in our minds. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
That was a message this church needed to remember, and it's a, a message that this church needs to remember. We're not to be captivated by fear. We're not to be captivated by fear about what the culture around us does. The culture has very limited ability to affect our lives in general. It can persecute, it can bring pain, it can bring difficulty, it can bring inconvenience, but ultimately it's Christ who holds the keys to the kingdom. And what he opens, nobody can shut. And we rest safely as a church and as believers under his sovereign care and control. That's a beautiful picture of Christ for the church. He turns then in verse 8 to begin some of the commendations he has for this church. He says to them, I know your works. I've set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I, I know that you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. He describes them as a church that's had but little power. Uh, he's not insulting them there. He's just saying something that was clear and true. They were not a church of, of, of massive size and influence and standing. They were small and insignificant and poor and probably largely overlooked from all outward appearances. And they might have concluded if they were talking amongst themselves that they had a really small capacity for ministry and a really small capacity to really do anything effectively for Christ. And Christ has a message for them that's really clear that they needed to hear that that evaluation is absolutely wrong absolutely wrong it's not an insult to the church he's encouraging them what he's saying to them is i know you're small i know you're not a mega church i, I know you you lack major influence i know that you're suffering and struggling but you're a church that has power you're a church that has great great potential even though you're small even though you feel insignificant you've got great opportunity my power rests in the church and my power can flow through you and the reason for that is because you've kept my word and you haven't denied my name now you've seen as we walk through some of these other churches how they've navigated similar circumstances right in many ways some of them uh, all of them except Smyrna in some way did not do one of these two things they either didn't keep the word of Christ or they in some way denied his name that is to say they either they had either uh, become sort of um, uh, so, so, so sort of drilled in on their, on their theology and on their head knowledge that they had squeezed out the love of Christ or they had gotten so, so caught up in the love of Christ that they had lost all discernment and all theological sort of bearing in the congregation or they had allowed influences that were ungodly, heretical influences into the church or some sort of thing like that. But this church at Philadelphia had done none of that. They had kept the faith, he says. They had faced the persecution and the difficulty, and they had held on. They didn't give up. They didn't run away. They didn't draw inward. They didn't compromise with the culture. They kept the faith. They kept a laser, a laser shot on the, the will of God for their church, and they just didn't deviate no matter what came down the pipe. It held on to Christ through everything, and they were unified in their fidelity, which is important. As a church, they were together in their fidelity. There was no faction that was running a different way. There was no Jezebel clan that was pulling in a different direction. They were together, and together they had held fast to Christ. They kept his word, and they had not denied his name. What a beautiful thing to be said about a church, right? What more could you ask for as a church than to be known as a church who keeps the word of God and refuses to deny his name, right? The highest compliment anyone could give any church is the compliment Christ gives to this church. 
May it be what we strive for in our church, to be known as a church who keeps the word of God, who refuses to deny him regardless of what the culture around us does. It should be the standard for all churches, right? No matter how easy or how hard you hold fast to Christ, no matter how painful or how smooth, you just refuse to compromise with the world around. No matter what happens in the culture, no matter whether the culture accepts us or rejects us, we just stay firm and hold fast to Christ and refuse to deny him. No matter whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular, no matter who wins the election or the one after that, we hold fast to Christ and we keep his name. should be the trademark of the church and it was for this church in Philadelphia and Christ says because of that I've placed in front of you an open door I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut what is this open door well I think it's likely a door of opportunity for ministry and missions what Christ is saying is you may look you may think you're insignificant you may think you can't have very little impact but you don't know the reality of the situation I have put in front of you a tremendous door of opportunity an opportunity for you to do more than you ever could imagine that you could do. An opportunity for you to get out there and make an impact and, and make a, a difference in your city for my kingdom with the gospel. The task of impacting their city was probably overwhelming to them. And Christ says, I've given you an opportunity. It's an opportunity and nobody can shut the door. He uses language that's similar to what Paul uses. You may remember that Paul uses this language of open doors in, in other places. Colossians chapter 4, Paul speaks about this same sort of thing. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Paul understood this reality that he could go out and he could preach the gospel, but if the Lord didn't open a door for the ministry, that his words would fall on deaf ears. That if the Lord didn't go before him and pave the way and open up the opportunity and open the ears of the people, that he was going to go and speak the gospel and people were going to be shut out. But Paul said, pray for me. Pray for us that God would open up a door. That he'd give us an opportunity to get in front of the lost. That he'd give us an opportunity to preach the gospel. And that he'd give them receptive hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 he says, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for, for a, a wide door of effective work is opened up for me here. And there are many adversaries. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? Paul says, I'm going to stick around here in Ephesus for a while because what do, you, what do you know? In the midst of all these adversaries, the Lord has opened wide this door for effective work. There's an opportunity here. People are receptive. Their hearts are open and they're listening to the gospel and they're being saved in the midst of all of the darkness around, in the midst of the, the antagonism around. God's opened up a door for the work. You go back to Acts 14 and you can see the same thing. It tells us in verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's when God had opened up the gospel to the Gentile world. That happened not because Peter was a, a persuasive presenter of the gospel. It happened, Cornelius was saved in all of his family and all the Gentiles who followed, not because of the persuasiveness of Peter, but because God had opened a door for the work of the ministry there. And it seems that what Christ is saying to this church is a principle. That because you've been faithful in the few things that you've had, I'm setting before you greater opportunity. Because you've held fast to me, 
because you've kept my word and you've refused to deny my name, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you more. I'm giving you greater opportunity to make a difference. See, there's two critical ingredients for faithful ministry and effective ministry, if you will. Christ has to open the door for the ministry. And secondarily, Christ's people have to be active and faithful to go through it and to do the work of the ministry. The two ingredients have to be there. We can't sit back and say, well, ministry is going to be effective just because God is sovereign and he just does it and, you know, it's all on him. And on the other hand, we can't say, well, all of it's on us and we've got to get out there and be persuasive and we've got to manipulate people and try to coerce things either as though it all depends on the work that we do. But somewhere in the middle is the reality that God opens the door for the ministry, but his people have to be faithful to go through it and do the work of the ministry. Nobody else is going to do it for us. I was reading this week in a book, and it was a book about uh, how the church interacts with the culture, and I read this, this segment that really just sort of stuck with me as I was thinking about this part of this message. This author by the name of Ashford talks about folks who view the church as a bomb shelter. He says this, it's a little lengthy, but listen. He says many Christians view the church primarily as a bomb shelter. This is especially a temptation for Americans who realize that their country is becoming increasingly post-Christian and in some ways even anti-Christian. They realize that their beliefs on certain theological and moral issues will increasingly be rejected and mocked by the political and cultural elite and by many of their fellow citizens. Under such an ideological assault, Christians sometimes have a collective anxiety attack. Their dominant mood tends to be protective Conceiving the church as a bomb shelter trying to protect believers from aerial assault or perhaps a monastery where people can withdraw from the contingencies of contemporary existence or even better, a perpetual yoga retreat where we can empty our minds of certain harsh realities. Believers with this mentality have good intentions. They want to preserve the church's purity, recognizing that the church is under attack, that therefore we should hold fast to the faith they know that there's a great battle being waged, a battle that plays out both invisible or invisibly in the heavenly realm and visibly in the cultural realm. However, this mentality is misguided, arising from a timid fear of humanity. It's spurred more by secular wisdom than by biblical faith, more by faithless fear than by Christian courage and vitality. It views the church as a walled city rather than a living being, as a safe deposit box rather than a conduit for spiritual power. That rings so true to me because I've seen evidence of that kind of thinking all around in the Christian world in recent months. The idea that because the culture is becoming increasingly hostile, that we have to sort of hole up inside the walls and become a bomb shelter or a safe deposit box where we just try to keep the world out and keep the gospel in. But the reality is that the church has always been called to be a conduit of the power of God into the world in which he plants it. That was the case of the church in Philadelphia, and it's the, the case with the church here. The church is called to, to, the, to a great commission, and it's a great commission that isn't an optional commission. It's a commission to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, to be conduits of the power of God into the world around us with the gospel. And that's what he's saying to this little church. He's saying, I've set before you an opportunity and you have my power within you. Get out there and get it. You may not think you're significant, but you're going to be surprised at what you find when you walk through that door. You can do more than you ever imagined. They'd been faithful in a few things, and so Christ had opened up much more. 
What a great way to be known as a church, right? What a great way to be known as a church. He wraps up this, the, the latter portion of our text in this letter with some promises to this church, this church filled with faithful believers who he refers to later as overcomers. Now I'm going to frustrate some of you because a lot of what happens in the second part of this text uh, is sort of dependent upon how you understand eschatology, and I'm going to totally avoid that altogether, and you're going to send me an email this week calling me a chicken. And I understand that. I understand that. <clears throat> the goal of this, this series has not been to get into eschatology and try to figure out the sort of the intricacies of how we should understand the end times. The goal has been to understand how Christ speaks to his church. And so I want to focus on that in this church particularly, knowing that one day we'll come back and deal with the eschatological portions of the text, okay? So uh, don't think I'm just uh, ignoring them, but for the sake of time, I want to focus on these promises that Christ makes to this church, okay? This church has been faithful, and they have a wonderful opportunity in front of them that Christ has set, and he's making some promises to them. In verse 9, the first one is, he promises he's going to humble their enemies. He says, behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. That is exactly the way that the Jews were described in the church of Smyrna, if you remember. They say that they're Jews, but they're not. They lie. And he says to this church the same thing. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. And they'll learn that I have loved you. The Jewish opponents of this church were evil. They were evil, and they were, they were nasty, and they were mean, and they were hostile to this church. They claimed Abraham as their father. They claimed that they had a special relationship with God. They claimed to be the special recipients of God's covenant love, and that anyone outside of their group was outside of the love of God. That was their claim. But Christ says, I'm looking at them, and not only is that not true, they're not a synagogue of mine. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're utterly self-deceived. They're pawns of Satan. They look to Abraham. They follow the Old Testament worship pattern. They claim to be recipients of my covenant love. But they're pawns of Satan. They have nothing to do with me. Incidentally, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and following, Paul speaks to this. He says, listen, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. These people were claiming their heritage qualified them for the special covenant love of God. And, and Paul says what's been true all along, that nobody ever got that simply by being a child of Abraham, by having all the externals of faith. It was always about what was going on inside the heart. And what was going on inside of the heart of these Jewish persecutors was corruption. They were satanic. And they were utterly self-deceived. And God is going to humble them. Christ is saying to this little church, they claim the special covenant love of God, but they actually are serving Satan. And here's what's going to happen. One day I am going to humble them utterly, and I am going to show them, and it's going to be undeniable, that not only are they not the, the special uh, recipients of my covenant love, but you are. One day they're going to bow, and they're going to see that it's you that I've loved, not them. Their self-deception is going to be unmasked, if you will. What a terrible day it's going to be for those of the synagogue of Satan. What does it mean, uh, all of this, that he's going to make them come and bow down before your feet and so forth? There's all sorts of speculation about that. It could be a couple of different things. 
Um, the author doesn't tell us specifically how he's going to do this. Jesus doesn't say it. Um, maybe it's one of two things. Maybe he's going to save them like he did the Apostle Paul. Maybe he's referencing how he's going to bring, bring in many from among the Jewish people in the last days as we get up toward the end of time that many are going to be converted to Christ. If you remember, that was Paul, right? He was a violent, angry persecutor of the church. He hated the church, and he believed himself to be serving Christ but in reality, I mean, serving God, but in reality, he was serving Satan by persecuting the church. That was all up until God slammed him on his face in the middle of the road and blinded him and spoke to him, right? And all of a sudden, this arrogant, self-righteous man was humbled. He was humbled. God humbled him. And he opened his eyes to the reality. So maybe that's the kind of thing that God is promising is going to happen here to these Jewish persecutors. But I think what's more likely is that he's referencing the final judgment. As we saw in our last session together, that the, the saints, those who overcome, are going to be a part of the, the final judgment at the end of time with Christ. And I think that maybe that's what he's talking about here. That he's talking about the final judgment when those who have utterly rejected the Messiah, these Jewish persecutors in particular, are going to stand and face final judgment before Christ. And the saints, even these saints at Philadelphia, are going to participate in that in some way. And at that time and in that way, they're going to be utterly humbled and they're going to see the reality of their rejection of the Messiah and and their utter condemnation to hell, and they're going to know for sure that they were on the wrong side of history, and that these believers in Philadelphia were loved by Christ, that he loved them. The enemies are going to be humble, and this church is going to be vindicated. This little Christian church was loved by God. It was loved by him. Loved by, he loved this church. There's a second promise. And we'll skim this. Verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try and dwell, to try those who dwell on the earth. Again, this is particularly challenging to nail down. The issue here is that in some way Christ is going to protect these people from a, uh, a trial that's to come. Now again, this gets into all sorts of eschatological things. Depends on how you understand the millennium. It depends on how you view the tribulation and whether there's going to be a rapture of the church before, in the middle, or after, or none at all. All of those things play into how people interpret this particular text. And again, we won't go there um, what is he referencing here? Is there some immediate trial that's going to come in this area and Christ is going to protect them through it? Or is this something along the lines of some, something related to the tribulation that's coming prior to Christ's return? I think it probably relates to the latter because he says that this, whatever it is that's coming is coming on the whole world. It's coming on the whole world. It could refer simply to final judgment. You've kept my word, you've persevered, therefore I'm going to keep you safely through the final judgment. Whatever it means in specificity, whatever he's speaking about exactly, the issue is still the same and the promise is still the same. He's saying to this little church, bad times are coming and you need to understand that you're safe in my care. You're safe in my care. I'm gonna get you through right up to the end. That's all you need to know. You don't have to worry about what's happening in the culture around you. You don't have to worry about how hot the culture gets. You don't have to worry about the persecution. You don't have to worry about the rejection. You don't have to worry about it when the world goes crazy around you. What you need to know is that I got you. I got you. I see you. And I'm going to walk you through right to the very end. You're safe in my arms and in my care. There's a third promise. He says, to the ones, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
This is just a promise that he's going to secure and protect them in his kingdom. He's going to secure them in the kingdom and protect them. Maybe a reference to the earthquake that destroyed the city and people had to flee out of it. He's saying here, there's safety and there's security in my kingdom. I'm going to make you a fixture in my kingdom and, and, and nobody's going to run you out and nothing's going to run you out. You've got a permanent place with me and it's secure and I'll protect you. And then there's a final promise that he's going to grant them a permanent personal relationship with him. He says, I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own name. What is this about writing the name of God and so forth? It's all about Christ personally identifying with these people and identifying them as his. It's a symbol of personal, intimate, permanent relationship. If you just write down Revelation 22, 4 in your Bible, and you'll go back there and you'll see where we're told that speaking of those who were faithful to Christ, that they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This theme runs through the rest of Revelation. So it's a way of identifying Christ's people as belonging to him, as opposed to those who rejected him who are going to take a different kind of a mark, a mark of the beast. Christ says, I'm going to mark you out as my people. That's the promise here. You're going to have permanent, personal relationship with me in the new Jerusalem, the final destination of all who place their faith in Christ. So what's all this mean? Let's boil it all down, some application points. This is a wonderful church. Christ has wonderful things to say to them, wonderful promises to offer them. But here's the bottom line. Christ Jesus is the difference between life and death. That is the difference between the, this little church and the Jews that are persecuting it. It's the difference between those who are going to be marked by the name of Christ and those who are going to be marked with the mark of the beast. It's the, mark, it's the difference between those who are going to find personal, intimate relationship with Jesus in heaven forever and those who are going to be shut out of the kingdom into eternal darkness. Jesus Christ and him crucified and receiving him as Lord and Savior, recognizing him as the Messiah who's come and died, shed his blood for your sins and cast your heart and your life before him, receiving him as Lord and Savior. That's the difference between life and death. What we celebrated at the Lord's Supper is the difference between life and death. The little believers at Philippi, excuse me, at Philadelphia had received Christ, and that made all the difference. And those who were coming against them had rejected him, and they would spend an eternity in hell. Secondly, Jesus Christ is Lord of the church, and he's the source of its power and its impact. That's it. Christ is Lord of the church. The church has impact and power in its community and in the world around, not because of the eloquence of the pastor, not because of the brilliance of the people, not because of their theological knowledge, not because of any of the smart sort of scheming that they can do, not because they have the best programs in the world, but because Christ himself has set a door of opportunity in front of them and is flowing his power through the life of the believers in the church. He is the source of the power and the impact when the church holds on to Christ and when the church keeps his word and refuses to deny his name, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ flows through the church and he provides opportunity for the church to make a difference in the world. And then thirdly, Christ accomplishes his work through faithful believers. The people of God are the means for impacting the world. Christ is sovereign over the results, but he uses people as his means always uses people as his means. 
If you're a Christian today, he used somebody somewhere as part of his means in bringing you to Christ. Somebody brought the gospel to you. Somebody either engaged you one-on-one and shared what it meant to know Christ with you, or some preacher or some teacher engaged you with the gospel and preached it and taught it in your hearing. Somebody somewhere, probably a lot of different somebodies were involved in that process in your life who were planting seeds of the gospel all along. God was using all of those people as a part of his means to bring you to saving faith. And that's how he always has worked. He uses his people to sit back and say, we can just rest in the sovereignty of God and we have no responsibility is to utterly reject the whole swath of scripture that makes very clear that believers have a responsibility to go and take the gospel and that that is the chosen means by which God saves the elect. We must be a church that goes. God uses his people. He doesn't do it in a vacuum. We're not to be a bomb shelter. We're a missionary outpost in a pagan culture. That's who we've got to be as a church. And I challenge you with that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this little church in Philadelphia, for this little band of faithful believers who looked at themselves in the mirror and didn't see very much that was worthy, who didn't see very much potential or opportunity or possibility. But when you looked at them, the, 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 the opportunity was endless and the possibilities were endless because they had held fast to your word and they had refused to deny you even under immense pressure. And because of that, you had opened a door of opportunity. They'd been faithful a little, so you opened up an opportunity for so much more. All they had to do was continue to be faithful and get after it. And they were gonna be amazed to see what you do through them. And they didn't have to be afraid because they were resting securely in your care. They didn't have to uh, be worried about getting shut out of your kingdom or shut out of the synagogue or shut out of anywhere because you held the keys to all the places that matter. Lord, burn those truths in our heart, individually and collectively. May we be a church like Philadelphia that holds fast to your word, that refuses to compromise and deny your name, and that sees that even though we're small and even though we're little and maybe not the elites of the world, that there is the potential that you could put a door of opportunity in front of us and use us to do more than we could ever imagine. May we be committed to continue to go for your glory and your honor, we pray. Amen.